Welcome back to this Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sunny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post, Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm swell. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, kids these days. Who needs them? That's at least one of the takeaways from news that Warner Brothers Discovery is putting 25-second versions of Sopranos episodes on TikTok, the micro-video slash Chinese spyware app beloved by the youths of America. Uh, Now, look, we could be charitable here and suggest that there's little difference between a 25-second encapsulation of the show and the 25-second recaps of the previous episode ahead of a new episode, right? Or we could say that these are actually aimed at the people who have already watched the show and, and want to be reminded of its greatness so they are convinced to sit down and rewatch it, thus helping Max win the war on sleep. However, I choose not to be charitable right now, and I will instead treat it as yet more proof that Gen Z is the worst generation. Look at these kids. They're tickety talks, gutting the integrity of the greatest show on television. Did anybody ask David Chase for his permission to do this? Has he murdered David Zaslav yet? Whatever happened to the strong silent types and attention spans? Jodie Foster nailed it this week in her comments on Gen Z with their inability to spell properly in emails and their lax work ethics. Uh, They're all just sitting at home doom scrolling and watching Sopranos reductions. I know it. I know what they're up to. All right. Okay. In in all seriousness, I do find this kind of interesting. I find this kind of interesting for a couple of reasons. One, as I mentioned, look, this is a decent way to get people to rewatch the show. That's how you... Uh, that's how you get folks to stay with the app. You make it rewatchable, right? This is why people spend $100 million for friends for a year or whatever. You want folks to rewatch the things they've already watched. Uh, two, I don't know how many people who are on TikTok have actually watched the show, given that 80% of the users are between the age of 16 and 34, meaning that the oldest portion of this cohort was like eight or nine when The Sopranos debuted I, I don't know there's there's spoiler contamination possible here i don't like people being spoiled uh, of the great on the greatest show ever made they should watch it fresh but also number three like i actually really want to know what david chase makes of this like is he just sitting in his chalet somewhere sipping wine and like throwing darts at uh, the the org chart at wbd trying to figure out who exactly is going to pay for this uh, is he is, uh, I, I, I don't know Does he think this is going to lead to another wave of viewers watching the film? So maybe he's fine with it. His opinion matters. He did make the damn thing after all. And he's uh, always felt very controlling and proprietary about it for good reason. Uh, Alyssa, let's let's really sit down and examine this. If you could take any episode of The Sopranos and shrink it down to 25 seconds, which clips would you highlight? Uh, Sylvia Dante complaining about anti-Italian discrimination in... uh... And taking action on the anti-Columbus Day protests, uh, not least because um, it cracks my husband up and um, is provided sort of of the great all-time, like, I'm going to do something about this man, gifts. Um, But look, the problem with the Sopranos and the the specific problem with doing this to the Sopranos as a matter of communicating anything about the Sopranos is that, yes, the Sopranos is well plotted, stuff pays off in the long term. But that show is so vibes based, right? I mean, it's about like being with Tony wading into the pool and visiting the ducks. It's about, you know, being there on the couch with Carmilla and Father Phil, like a little bit too late at night, getting tempted, you know, away from the mission that God has assigned you. It's 
You know, it's about being meadow and having the sort of necessary rebellion from your parents tainted by this great moral question of whether you're going to break away from your family's legacy or, you know, whether or not you're going to be just a sort of classier version of the thug that your dad is. And so, you know, reducing The Sopranos like plot or even to sort of a recap misses the, the sort of languid nature of the show. Um, and it's just like, yeah, maybe it'll get people to watch The Sopranos. If so, like, great. But I don't even necessarily think that they're clipping out kind of the most memorable, visceral stuff that gets you the vibe at all. And so, you know, if, if I guess if the kids watch The Sopranos because of this and, you know, don't decide that Tony is awesome because he whacks people, then maybe it's fine. But it's just the, the sort of the context of no contextness of it all is just weird to me. That sense that everything needs to be abbreviated, that you wouldn't want to sort of linger in anything. It's just it's so alien to me personally um, that I just it's like I'm an old. I don't understand it. I don't understand why you do this and why it's appealing. I'm I'm elderly. You know, watch the whole damn episode and put away your screens, kids. I will say, I, watching some of the individual little things that they made, there, there are, there are reductions that do feel like episode recaps. Like this happened, yeah. and this happened, and this happened, and then there are other like kind of vibe based, as you say, like vibe based, but like getting a sense. Yeah, of I mean the, the sadness of some of these. It's, it's actually, I, I, I look, I, as somebody who has watched the show multiple times from start to finish, it is kind of interesting to look at as its own little discrete art project but i i don't i i just have so many questions about the broader implications of all of this i don't know peter don't ever... you seemed you seemed very upset yeah so normally my role on this show is to say that big corporations are awesome that new technology is great that whatever the kids are doing you know good for them they're just experiencing the world differently than some of us and that stuff that is like kind of crass and shallow marketing is wonderful because it gives our life richness and meaning which is fake anyway it's all just marketing but i hate this i can't even tell you how much i hated watching these clips there's this is so maybe this is obviously personal and idiosyncratic uh just about me because i hate short form online video kind of as a general rule with some exceptions um, I really don't like TikTok. I never watch YouTube except for movie trailers and stuff for work. Uh, just uh, like this is actually like a divide I've found with like sometimes I will be talking with much younger colleagues or you know twenty something friends, and they will ask me, "So what do you watch on YouTube?" And I'll be like, "Nothing, literally nothing ever." I've never sat and just kind of browsed YouTube and gone down a rabbit hole because I don't find it interesting at all. And I'm not on TikTok and I have no, and I don't watch TikTok because every time I've seen a TikTok, I'm just like, I don't get it. Why, why would you spend any time with this? So part of it is just that it's me, but I also, because I don't. Because Xi Jinping wants you to, Peter. I don't understand watching these things. What, you're, you're, Sonny, you are uh, saying that in some way this is supposed to get people to watch The Sopranos. And this format delivers so little of the fundamental appeal of The Sopranos, or and, and but also 
just it's, there's so little uh, that's appealing in any way that I cannot see how someone would watch this and think, ah, now I want to watch the long version. Now I want to get more of this. This does not seem like an effective advertisement. It seems like a, not even bad exactly, because they, sh they do actually kind of capture the, the arc of the, the, the plots of each episode reasonably well, like surprisingly well, given the, the shortness of it. But it, it's, it's just a, a boulderized version of, of this thing that doesn't deliver any of the essential pleasures of the original thing. And so I don't see how you get from watching this to thinking, oh man, now I want to go watch all 13 episodes of the first season. It's, there's just nothing there that's appealing in any way or, or grabs me. These aren't like if they were, you could, I can definitely imagine a series of TikTok advertisements for The Sopranos that teases a bunch of the plot elements and the characters that work like movie trailers. That make because I and I like movie trailers as a format. There, it's, I mean, sometimes they're annoying for sure, but but a, a good movie trailer can make you want to watch the rest of the thing and the, the the whole thing. These don't seem designed to make you want to watch the rest of the thing. They seem designed to supplant watching the whole thing in a way that's like, well, then you watched the TikTok version. What did you even get from that? What was the value add to your life of watching the twenty five second versions? Unless they are advertisements designed to to tease you and bring you in and to say, but there's more and it's like this. I truly just don't understand the appeal in any way here. But then, like I said, it's also very personal in that I genuinely never, ever watch anything in this format, except when at, there's some sort of work related reason. Well, it's definitely there is definitely a very specific visual language to these things the the kind of quick cuts and the the zoom ins. Right. And the like uh, almost. Uh, stilted way that things get cut off like a half second too early like that that exists within within the medium and is interesting in and of itself but i i would say look again i think i think the i will say that when i i watch i, watch, I sat down and i watched i don't know five or six of these things in a row and then i was like this is kind of annoying and then i was like oh let me watch a couple more and what i took away from them as somebody who has watched the show multiple times was like if i was sitting at if I was sitting on my phone scrolling, just trying to figure out something to do, and I came across these, my actual response would be, I'm wasting my life doing this. I should actually just watch this episode of the show again. I should watch, I should rewatch the Pine Barrens or whatever. You know, I should, I should rewatch uh, the, the episode where um, Tony decides to cheat on his wife. That so one, so the case here is that I, this I, is I'm a like, nudge to people who have already seen the show to watch it again. This did mm -hmm. not make me want to revisit The Sopranos. It made me want to run from all screens and never watch anything on a screen again. It was so mm -hmm. horrifying. I'm I'm fascinated by this reaction because you are Mr. Techno usually. You're like, AI is going to make all our lives better. What if this had been cut together by AI? I bet you would love it. That's true, actually. I would have enjoyed that a lot more. <laughs> The thing that I did uh, like no, about I, it that I the that I know you appreciated as well was they took the Sopranos kind of groundbreaking for television sixteen by nine thirty five millimeter photography and they re rendered it <laughs> in vertical phone mode. 
Absolutely. That's how all that should be I, It's how... really a good thing that I don't have, like, suicidal impulses or anything. Cause That's I how just, I watched uh, like, Oppenheimer after, I just, after the Golden Globes last night. I, just, I uh, wanted to die. I wanted to die so much wow. watching I these not, things. This is the most depressed that... I have ever been doing anything <laughs> for this show. Wow. Um, I, I mean... I will say one reaction I have. Have you guys seen the Livia Soprano, um, Olivia Rodrigo Venn diagram? No. No. So, <laughs> do, okay, do you guys uh, know? I know who Olivia Rodrigo is, but I'm not actually sure I've ever heard one of her songs. It's on my list, actually, because some of my She's great. Criticisms I mean, it's like, music criticism sites have given her. Are you going to try to explain art, a visual but, meme to us right now, yeah. Alyssa? <laughs> do I mean, it. I've That's already, what the podcast format is for. I've already said how old I am. So um, Olivia Rodrigo is great. Um, Peter, you should listen to her. She like she l- sounds like someone who like listened to a lot of early Slater Kinney and then mm. like got in a studio with like slightly better recording capacity. Um, and is just like a little bit younger, uh, which she is a lot um, younger. Since she's but yeah, a lot younger since she's a teenager. I don't I don't want to think about how old um, Corinne Tucker and Carrie Brownstein are. OK, I'm I'm old. We have a new um, album coming out this month. Yes, We're ranting about TikTok on this podcast. We <laughs> we're are talking all about Slater Kitty. I'm so okay. it's true. We're we're so old. Did you read the New Yorker profile of? Anyway, anyway I will stop. <laughs> That's the oldest thing anyone has said on this show so far. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna log off and just crumble into dust. Um, but there, Olivia Rodrigo has a song um, called Good For You that's basically about being mad that an ex-boyfriend is doing really well without her. And um, there, there's a chorus, a version of the chorus that goes, well, good for you. You look happy and healthy. Not me, if you ever cared to ask. Good for you. You're doing great out there without me, like a damn sociopath. And that's the Venn diagram of Olivia Soprano and Olivia Rodrigo. And it's just kind of perfect. So it's like you can make a really good like Gen Z Sopranos meme, but this whole enterprise on TikTok is not that. Um, I just I just feel like the the show stands so well on its own, and it is it's it's not you know I, every once in a while I see somebody on Twitter complaining about like oh you've got vegetable filmmaker Martin Scorsese running down my Marvel movies you know this guy who made Goodfellas and Casino what does he know about entertaining pictures and I'm just like. Those are not vegetable movies. Those are those are actually very entertaining, fun, action-packed films. You should watch them. Uh, and I feel like The Sopranos has managed to kind of transcend generational boundary and and, and appeal to the youngs. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they need the TikToks. Well, but to it's get interesting. It. Hasn't like a lot of the sort of Gen Z nostalgia stuff been sort of for sitcoms, right? I mean, it's you know, Friends, The Office. It's sort of the comfort viewing. Um. And I don't know that Gen Z has discovered like the so-called golden age of television again. And so I guess it might be interested to see them do that. It's very difficult for me to diagnose. Nothing nothing good can come of that. I I don't feel like I can generalize about Gen Z because the folks who I talk to who are in that age cohort are pretty, are, are oddballs. I mean- that's sort of how it ends up. Are you just working. are you calling yeah. all of your reason colleagues weirdos? I'm saying like they're not the most normal people <laughs> in the world, um, and that's why I like them and know them and get along. And I and at least in my cohort of like kind of literary, kind of writerly, kind of like uh, sort of interested in nerd culture uh, uh, friends and colleagues, 
a, a lot of folks have actually gone back and watched The Sopranos. And like, so, so for a, a certain type of, I don't know, artsy, weird, interested in like the, uh, the older culture, right? O- older pop culture that's not like just, you know, sort of what's coming out now. Like those folks have definitely gone back and rewatched The Sopranos. Okay. All right. So what, uh, what do we think here, guys? Is it a controversy or a controversy? that Warner Brothers Discovery is trimming the Sopranos down to half-minute morsels for Gen Z consumption. Peter? It's awful. I don't, it's not even, it's not a controversy. It's just like, I, I want to die. I want to I wanna shrivel into a little, like, dead raisin and, like, go be, like, be smushed into the crack of, a, like, a sidewalk somewhere and then be washed into the gutter. And, like, that's, oh. Okay, that's right. my reaction, uh, Alyssa. Alyssa, uh, controversy or controversy? Uh, it's controversial that Peter has untreated depression and that we're all really old. Um, yeah, I don't even know that I can say that. Like, this makes me feel gross, but I don't necessarily think that it's controversial. I'm going to say think, it's a controversy. All right, fair enough. I think I think it's a controversy mostly because it, if we're going to be describing visual memes here, you know the meme that's like myth of consensual X. And then it's like two, it's a couple that says, I consent, I consent. And then it's like uh, another person jumping in and said, you forgot about me. That's how I feel about this, except David Chase is the third person. I want David Chase jumping into the boardroom and saying, you forgot to get somebody's consent on this. Me, David Chase, the guy who created the show. All right. uh, Make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday about debut directorial efforts tied to Core Jefferson's initial outing American fiction. Speaking of which, on to the main event, American fiction. Uh, Some discussion of the film's plot and its conclusions coming up. So log off now if you're worried about spoilers. We're going to do some talking about movies and plots. And I'm just going to ramble here for a second so you can get to your phone and jam that pause button. All right. Starring Jeffrey Wright as academic and novelist Thelonious Ellison, uh, who goes by Monk, American fiction, seeks to shine a light on some of the absurdities of the publishing industrial complex. Monk is a novelist, and he is black, but he is not a black novelist, as the term is commonly used by critics, publishers, and agents. His work involves retelling Greek plays through a modern lens. Uh, You want a new take on Euripides? He's your guy. You want to look at life in the ghetto? Well, you're better off with Wheeze Lives in the Ghetto, a bestseller. Monk needs money. He's been put on leave following a complaint from a white student about his discussions of race. Uh, His mom has dementia, needs elder care. His brother, Cliff, played by Sterling K. Brown, is broke because he's in the midst of a divorce as a result of coming out as gay. And his sister, Lisa, played by Tracy Ellis Ross, uh, dies in the opening act. Again, spoiler. Sorry about that. Uh, Part joke, part secret desire to hit the big time. Monk sits down and bangs out a wheeze lives in the ghetto style novel called My Pathology, a parody of the genre that he wants to send to publishers to rub their noses in what they buy, except, oops, publisher wants to buy it, uh, and they want to pay him $750,000 for the debut novel of Stag R. Lee, uh, as Monk dubs his pseudonym. Uh, A studio wants to pay millions for the book rights. It's up for awards, which is complicated for Monk since he's, uh, along with Weez lives author the we the Weez lives author I I I cannot pronounce I like feel awkward just pronouncing the title of that book uh, has been brought into one of the boards handing out the awards uh, as part of a diversity push. Um, American fiction is basically two different movies. You've got a family drama slash comedy about the Ellison family 
and their various difficulties. Uh, and that is alternately funny and heartwarming and a little caustic, but never too caustic. They're complicated, but they all basically get along. They even have a ha happy, sassy housekeeper helping out. Um, this portrait of black upper middle class family life is the best rebuttal to the sort of silliness we see portrayed in the books like My Pathology. Uh, the second movie aspires to, to be a critique of the industry writ large. And here it's a little bit toothless. Uh, this is not Spike Lee's Bamboozled. Uh, it is that uh, in, in that it does not really examine or condemn, um, you know, those who create and consume this sort of media. Everything that happens in the film is designed in a way that gives the audience, which is, you know, let's be honest here. It's going to be kind of uh, a very white, liberal, progressive audience. The sort of people who flock to movie festivals, that sort of thing. I mean this descriptively, not judgmentally. It's going to give those folks room to chuckle and cluck their tongues and say, well, I'm not like those people. Uh, consider the sequence near the beginning, right? When Monk gets in an argument with a student about the use of racial slurs in literature. It is transparently absurd that this white female student is telling this older black man when it can and can't be used. Uh, and what would this scene look like? Say if it was a black student who was making the same argument, how would it play? With whose sympathies would we ally? It, it would be an interesting, more uh, difficult and thorny subject. Instead, we could just say, okay. Or consider uh, Monk's uh, reconciliation with the author of Wee's Lives in the Ghetto. She argues persuasively that her books are just a slice of life. It's something that needs to be seen, something that she has done research on. It portrays a reality. And he's like, okay, yeah, I, I, I kind of get that. But if that's true, then, okay, what are we even doing here with this movie? Um, the, the critique winds up being somewhat amusing, but fairly toothless. Again, clueless publishers and college students and movie execs come in for a drubbing, but there's no real effort to examine audiences and artists and their role in this. Either the stuff exists because of demand for it, and that demand is bad, or it exists because of demand for it, and the supplier is corrupt. But you can't just blink both of them out of the picture. Of course, if you do blink them out of the picture, then you can rack up audience awards at film festivals. So what do I know? Uh, Peter, am I being too cynical about American fiction's lack of cynicism? Not entirely. I, I, I agree with you to some extent. This is a movie that is genial, that is nice. I think that's part of the appeal of it, that it's a movie that has some satirical targets, but isn't uh, going after those targets in, uh, in a way that is fundamentally mean or um, it doesn't have a, a killer instinct. But I also think that part of what this movie is doing is showing you the rules that it is playing by. There is a way in which this movie is quite subtly, I think, suggesting that the reason that it is all structured the way it is, that it, uh, I guess you could say it lets some people off the hook or certainly doesn't hold people too accountable in, in most cases, um, is that ultimately, it, in the, since we're doing spoilers here, the, the resolution of this movie is that Thelonious learns that he has to deliver the ending that Hollywood wants. And then we get that ending, which is a completely ridiculous cop-out, kind of over-the-top, silly ending. But it's an ending that satisfies the needs of the audience, and that's what it does. And then, and then at the, as, the movie, uh, you know, as the movie finishes, he, that ending happens. It's a sort of ridiculous action ending, right? Um, that ending happens. He walks out to his brand-new sports car on the Hollywood lot. He drives away, but not before not before looking at another black actor who is dressed in a slave costume. And so this is, this is 
in some ways, I think the movie's sharpest critique, uh, uh, not just of the movies, but of itself. The movie is signaling to you that it is that it is participating in this, uh, I don't know, dumbing down, softening, let's say softening uh, of uh, of its uh, satirical targets, that it is participating in delivering the thing that people want and that's, that goes down easy because that is because that ultimately is what you have to do in order to get something made in order to be the one driving the sports car. Uh, and, and it's also suggesting, you know, that there's a little bit of, um, I don't want to say, oh, these people are slaves, right? Exactly. But like, there's a kind of a, a, a metaphor there about the way in which, you know, we're all, anybody who wants to be a creator and who wants to work in this system is ultimately going to, going to have to deliver what the system demands of them. Um, rather than the thing that they most want to do. And what this movie, and so what it does is it delivers this ridiculous, not too biting satire plot that, as you say, Sonny, goes down pretty easy. It doesn't hold too many people uh, too accountable, despite, you know, poking fun at some uh, left-wing shibboleths, right? While also then showing us that you can make a charming and decent and humane movie about black upper middle class life, which is, I think, the kind of thing that that like like to me, this is a movie about how like in order to get the black middle class upper life, uh, uh, black upper middle class life drama made, you gotta have some something else on top of it, right? And and we've seen this. This is actually, I mean, this is true regardless of in all sorts of realms in in Hollywood, right? You've got to sort of turn things into genre um, if you want to do. Uh, contemporary, nuanced, realistic drama these days, and uh, and I think that the movie basically works on all of those terms. And I I think that I I agree that this that there's maybe a there's certainly a sharper movie and a a more fanged movie to be had from this idea. And the worst scene to me is the one where Issa Rae's character defends her work because in some ways. As you say, Sonny, it is, well, what are we doing here? But it actually, it undermines the comedy and the critique of the initial scenes when Thelonious first encounters her work. It basically says, well, actually, this, isn't, this stuff isn't ridiculous. And if it's not ridiculous, then, then what? Then what are we doing? Um, and, in, and in fact, Cor Jefferson has said in interviews that he added that scene in later because he didn't want to police blackness. Um, or I should say, he said, he said, in the same interview, I didn't want to police blackness, and he added that scene in fairly late in the game. Um, uh, and I don't, I think that scene in particular kind of stands out as a moment of letting everyone off the hook and of undermining the movie's own satirical targets. At the same time, it's charming. It's really well acted. Jeffrey Wright in particular is just incredibly appealing on screen. Uh, and so much of it actually just works on a sort of scene by scene basis. Uh, it's, it's a it's not a great movie. This isn't, you know, cinema that I'm going to be like talking about as one of the best movies of the decade, but it's a very good movie. And it's in particular a very good movie for a debut filmmaker. And the fact that this, that, you know, that he was able to get this movie made a, essentially a social drama about contemporary life as a debut film. That's a hard thing to do. And I think, uh, you know, Court Jefferson should be applauded for it. Uh, Alyssa, what did you make of American Fiction? It's interesting to me that both of you have brought up this scene where Monk is, is you know, sort of sitting down in his first one-on-one -on -one conversation with Centara Golden, this author who whose work he 
hasn't even read. And but he hates it and he hates what it represents. And to me, that scene actually gets at a real fundamental weakness that I think runs through both halves of this movie. Because, you know, Peter, I understand you looking at that scene and saying, well, it sort of lets, um, you know, it kind of lets everybody off the hook. But I actually think the incompleteness of that scene lets, in particular, Monk off the hook in a way that kind of damages the movie. Because what it doesn't do, I mean, there's a really interesting potential reckoning if Monk recognizes that he hasn't read this book, but also that it is, you know, it's like a deep work of reportage, right? I mean, she talks about having actually talked to real people. And if the movie had sort of followed that through, it might have reflected back on the family drama in a really interesting way as being a story about the intersection of race and class, right? Because, you know, one of the things that is very interesting about the family drama is, you know, the, the Ellison family is sort of wealthy but precarious, wealthy but maybe not able to hold on to that status. Um, and that status is important to them and inflected, you know, the, and that importance is in, sort of shows up in the movie in a number of ways, right? You know, Monk hates the idea of his mother going to anything less than a sort of Cadillac assisted living facility. Um he, you know, he doesn't want to let go Lorraine, the family's sort of longtime housekeeper, because she's like family, a term that is, you know, in fiction and in real life is often invoked by white employers to talk about their domestic help of color in a way that obscures the intimacy of the relationship. Right. And I, I like I say that as someone who my longtime nanny is from Nicaragua and, you know, we are enmeshed in all of those complications in our own life. Um, and yet, you know, Monk has a sort of contempt and discomfort for the idea that not just, you know, a certain kind of stereotypical black experience should be the only one that white, that white audiences want to buy, but that shades into a sort of contempt and complicated relationship with poor black people, right? You know, um, and the, the, the domestic half of the movie you know, is full of those sort of class anxious details, but not doesn't really dive deeply into, for example, you know, what does like what are the historic black neighborhoods in Boston like? And, you know, I want to I appreciate, for example, the early joke in the movie about how Dorchester is mostly white. Right. Like I grew up in the Boston area. My great aunt was actually involved in photographing large sections of the city. Um as many of these historically black neighborhoods were being redeveloped, demolished, moved around, um, you know, and so the movie's, you know, the movie's racial geography is sort of accurate and interesting and carefully observed. And yet I don't think either in the sort of literary satire half of the movie or in the family drama, does it deal with this question of what it means for class to have, you know, let me put it this way. It doesn't engage with the idea of what it means if your class status has changed what it means to be black for you, right? Um, and it doesn't directly address that sort of fear of sliding backwards, even though that's kind of the subtext. And 
the movie could have really brought that together by having Monk misunderstand Sintara's work, right? But the scene sort of stops before the conclusion, and then we get into these kind of meta riffs on, you know, the movie industry and, you know, what did Monk actually say when he accepted the statue? And it just sort of, it shies away from that. It shies away from that reckoning in a way that I think really harms both halves, halves of the movie. And I was excited to see this. You know, Peter, it made your top 10 list. It was a movie that I said, you know, I was disappointed not to have seen. Um, but I actually think there's a real, you know, I mean, I think Gord Jefferson has a real nice way with actors. Um, I don't know if either of you have ever watched Living Single, but I love seeing Erica Alexander, um, who was one of the stars of that show in this movie. She has not worked a ton, and that's a shame. Um, but I just, you know... I think it's just really flawed in a fundamental way. Um, and it actually made me somewhat surprised that you liked it as much as you did, Peter. I, uh, no, I mean, I, I, the, it's, 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 it's interesting that you bring up the, the, the kind of geography of race because the, the, the book, which I picked up and was, was reading after uh, seeing the movie does an interesting and good job of discussing that in re, re, relation to Washington, DC um, where, where it's uh, where large portions of it are set early on. Um, and I, I, I mean, look, I don't know. I, again, I, I just, I, the, all of the family's drama stuff was good for all the reasons. I, and I think, I think it gets at that nay, that notion of precariousness, that kind of yeah. fear of, um, of. Well, and how quickly know. it can chip away. Right. I mean, you've got a couple of divorces that leave people strained. You have someone who, you know, is in this field that can be remunerative when you hit it big. Um, but yeah, I just thought it didn't sort of take that all the way home. Um, anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, it's fine. I, 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 Peter, what do you, what do you, what do you make of Alyssa's, uh, pushback on your, I don't entirely disagree, but I guess Alyssa had, um, Alyssa, it sounds like you had to sort of, you wanted more from this movie than I wanted. I, Mm -hmm. I wanted, like, and I, in some ways, I, I think I'd like your movie better, but I, I think this movie lived up to enough of its promise, and maybe I just sort of felt mm-hmm. like its promises were, were smaller. Um, I, this is, the movie is light, like it is light and frothy. It is not uh, a super deep exploration of almost any of its issues. Uh, more or less by design and it it um it gets the feeling of being a little heavier from a couple of things one is just sort of the satirical targets two is the fact that uh you know the family stuff like anybody who's had even the smallest amount of experience with anything like that uh with you know parents dying or having to go into assisted living and the caretaking responsibilities uh divorces etc like all this other sort of like chaotic stuff happening at the same time. If you have been through that yourself, it just feels heavy. But the movie actually, like, we think about all the scenes. It's not that it doesn't treat it as sad or doesn't treat it with any kind of seriousness. That's not what I'm saying. It treats it quite lightly. It is not a, a deep uh, exploration of these things. Um, and then it gets just a little bit more weight from Jeffrey Wright's performance because Jeffrey Wright's performance is really excellent uh, and kind of in well, some also ways, Sterling adds, K. Brown's performance. A, which, yes, yeah. they're all, they're all yeah. very good. I want to be clear, it, but Jeffrey Wright is in nearly every scene in this movie. He carries the whole thing, 
and he's he's just I love him in everything. He has been, you know, it, it, like on my like, oh, I just want to see him do stuff list uh, since he stole Shaft 20 something years ago. Um, that movie, he actually, side note, uh, fun story. Uh, the test audience, the, the movie was written with Christian Bale as the actual main bad guy. Test audiences were like, why is Christian Bale the main bad guy? And so they reworked the movie to make Jeffrey Wright more of a, like a, the more central villain because test audiences were like, he's the person who we want to see more of. Um, and I, I, I didn't see it to the test version of the movie, but since then I've always wanted to see more of him. And I'm always glad to see him on screen. And he just sort of carries a bunch of this stuff. So, but this is a light movie and it's a light and easygoing movie. But I think to me, what I, I, I wasn't expecting a ton more. And what the movie does smartly is at the end, it suggests that's the movie you can make. That's, that's what you can do. You, ha you ultimately, you have to sort of give in to the reality of we're not going to take this too seriously. It's going to be a little bit, it's going to be a little bit light and it's going to be filtered through the prism and expectations, uh, the, the lens of what Hollywood demands and expects from commercial filmmaking. And that's how you that's how you get this thing off the ground. Otherwise, otherwise, you know what? You're stuck being grumpy Thelonious writing adaptations of Greek literature that nobody actually reads. Uh, one side random note and Sterling K. Brown is great in this. I, I love seeing him in everything. He he is like with like Jeremy Irons and like other people. He has like a perfect voice. I just yeah. like hearing him talk. Um, But the uh, but it, it's interesting looking at Sterling K. Brown here, uh, Barry Keown in Saltburn, uh, Bradley Cooper and Maestro. It's been a very weird year for like closeted gay men destroying families in motion pictures. It's like a it's like a weird uh, trend, little micro trend. I don't know what uh, is going on with that precisely. Uh, but interesting. All right. Uh, thumbs up or thumbs down on American fiction. Peter. Thumbs up. It, I, I still, even after listening to Alyssa's critique and agreeing with a lot of it, I still think this is one of the better movies that came out in 2023. Alyssa. Um, I will give it a thumbs up for the performances, but I do not think it was one of the better movies of 2023. Uh, thumbs up. I mean, I, I, it's, it's funny because I, I, from moment to moment, I enjoyed basically everything in this movie. It's, it's, it's fine and fun and has some great comic beats in it. I do wish I had seen the trailer like a hundred fewer times before seeing the movie because a lot of the the best stuff is in the, in the trailer. Well, you it just got to go to the movies problem. less. Sunny. You can't go to the movies. So I, well, that's the to... problem. Is I go to I I saw it. I saw, I went to like fifty movies at the Alamo Draft House, and every single one of them played American Fiction in front of it. So uh, you know, it was a or played the trailer for American Fiction in front of it. It was a real real problem for me. It's but tough uh, it's being sunny it's, it's entertaining and it's it's hard. I, somebody should make a movie about me. All right, that is it for today's show. Many thanks to our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode. Tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend. It's basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bond Show. I'm convinced you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Bye.